Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith ND podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm really pleased to welcome to the podcast this week Senior Cecily Castillo. Cecily is a chemical engineering major as well as a campus ministry anchor intern, and we're excited to talk to her today. So welcome to the podcast, Cecily. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. If you could give us a sense of who you are and your background, that'd be a great place to start. As Dan said, my name is Cecily Castillo. I am a senior from Buda, Texas. It's right outside of Austin. I'm a chemical engineering major. I live in Ryan Hall here on campus, and I am a campus ministry anchor intern specifically in the area of multicultural ministry. But within multicultural ministry, my focus is Latino ministry. Thank you. Growing up in Texas, did you grow up there your whole life? What was that like? I've been born and raised in Texas, lived in the same house my entire life. Texas is a wonderful place, and I love it so much, and I'm so happy to call it home. Growing up, I live with my mom and my dad. I have an older sister and a younger sister. My older sister, Celeste, is a Nerdim graduate. She graduated in 2017. She now lives in Columbus, Ohio. And I have a younger sister, Celine, who is a junior here at Notre Dame. And we've all lived in Ryan Hall together. Okay. And <laughs> three girls, all Notre Dame. It's been wonderful. Growing up in Texas, I attended Catholic school from kindergarten through third grade. Fourth through seventh grade, I actually went to a non-denominational Christian school for a few years. Mm -hmm. And then for eighth through twelfth grade, I returned to Catholic school. So probably a big highlight of growing up in Texas and specifically in Austin was for my schooling. I actually had teachers from the Alliance for Catholic Education from first through third grade and then eighth all the way through 12th grade as well. So they've been definitely a hallmark and really central in my Catholic school years. Yeah, great ambassadors of uh, Notre Dame graduates in the ACE program for sure. What was your family's practice of faith when you were growing up? What, What were some of the things that were important to all of you? Growing up, we went to Mass every single Sunday. As soon as we were old enough, we became altar servers and dedicated altar servers at (laughs) church. I remember every Sunday at our 1130 Mass, always serving and just always being willing to serve. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I think was very key for me growing up, was becoming active within the church, within the Mass specifically, regularly. That was something that was very important to me growing up and is still something that is very important to me now just because that was, I think, the beginning of my own faith journey, Mm -hmm. um, distinct from just my parents taking my sisters and I to Mass every week. And my parents were both active. They They participated in Mass. They were always in the first few pews. I remember my parents both attended Christ Renews' parish retreats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that the decision that my parents made to attend those on separate weekends themselves was very important. And I remember seeing a little bit of a shift in how my parents approached their faith lives. I remember seeing my father being a little bit more active during the Mass, really taking on that full heart and voice during the Mass responses and the hymns. And that was something that I think was very important to me. And I remember noticing that Mm -hmm. because it was... I saw their faith lives as being dynamic at that point and always trying to grow. So I think that's something that I took. Which is so important because sometimes just the way that the sacraments often set themselves up or, you know, in our current context, confirmation, 
sometimes gets equated with like graduation from the faith and nothing could be further from the truth. It's like, no, you're fully initiated now. It's a lifelong process. And I think that's so important for children to see their parents say, no, I am not a finished product here. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. There are still spiritual lessons from being married and being a parent that that I need to bring to my faith. So it sounds like a really ripe environment to, to have a really strong foundation of faith. Yes, I'd agree. My parents were very influential in my faith life, and to this day they are still influential. But in my new role in campus ministry, I've enjoyed seeing how I've made my faith life my own and separate from that of my parents because I know that is a struggle for everybody in college mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. everybody as they become a young adult and become adults and parents themselves is how how do you make your faith life your own and encourage that within your children. When you were even in late middle school, high school, or when you came to Notre Dame, did you have a sense of the gift that your parents' strong faith life was, or at least that, hey, we're a little bit different from the norm here, and and how did you make sense of that? I made sense of it in that I always had a desire to grow. I wanted that relationship that people had always talked about with God. I remember being taught prayer can be a conversation with God. It doesn't have to be an Our Father, a Hail Mary, a Rosary every single time that sometimes the most, or, and what I've found, honestly, the most intimate form of prayer is an honest conversation with God. And I think that seeing my parents, I like the term continual conversion mm-hmm. and reorientation back towards Christ, that allowed me to really explore and to be very open to what allows me to connect with God. And I think especially the encouragement of being an altar server, being very active within the Mass itself because the Eucharist is the source and summit of Mm -hmm. the faith Mm -hmm. and getting to take that special participation and with the encouragement of my parents definitely made it easier, made me a lot more confident in Mm -hmm. searching out those roles. I feel like overall the biggest thing that they gave me was a confidence in asking questions, a confidence in the pursuit of a better relationship with God. Yeah, it it makes me think of the image of the North Star, like what's our North Star? And we're out of there on the the waters of life, if you will. We, we can drift. We can drift over time and not really realize it, but it's like how do we continue to reorient ourselves towards that, that final destination of heaven? And it sounds like your parents were great models of, as a family, we're constantly reorienting ourselves. We're using the rhythms of the liturgical year to check in with each other and to make sure that, yes, we're going to have sin and mistakes, and there also needs to be mercy and forgiveness. I mean, all those things sound like, uh, like I said, a really strong foundation and model that you had there. What were some of the cultural practices of your faith that were important to you growing up that either your parents or people in Texas or just your surrounding community that, that you brought with you to Notre Dame? Growing up in Texas, the celebration of Dea de Dead or the Los Muertos is very common, sure. especially being in Catholic school. I remember in kindergarten my mom handing me a picture of my grandfather, her father, who had passed away at that point, I think maybe six months not even a year mm-hmm. prior, and just saying, take this to school, they're going to put it on the altar. And I had no idea what that meant, because mm. this wasn't something we practiced normally at home. 
and then going in and them and seeing this and it having my mother understood and there was a significance because if my parents did not think something was important or they did not agree with it they would not allow us to participate in any in anything across the board and seeing their support in this in the celebration that people sometimes shy away from or are very hesitant about really reaffirmed it for me and then continuing through my first few years in Catholic school I remember that was something we always celebrated and the highlight of prayer during that entire month-long celebration was so important and then going into high school going back into Catholic school and seeing the same thing for 8th through 12th grade I went to a predominantly um, Hispanic Catholic high school I think Uh it was 96% okay and so that entire attitude and the sanctity of the celebration Mm -hmm. when it's celebrated with the specific marks of the Catholic faith was very present. I remember priests coming in and the altar being blessed and it was just filled. If you didn't put things there early enough, you'd have to tape them to the wall (laughs) right above just because (laughs) everybody wanted their items there because they wanted people to pray for their loved ones because praying for somebody is the most intimate way of showing your love for someone, taking that concern to God Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. what we were taught. And seeing that was something that was very meaningful to me. My family's not too big. There's three kids and then my mom and dad. So some people consider it big. I don't, especially because my father's actually one of 15. Okay. (laughs) So family has always been so important to me. And a celebration of faith and family and prayer was something that stuck with me forever. So when I came to Notre Dame, I saw the celebration done very small. Mm -hmm. I remember only seeing two altares on the entire campus. Mm -hmm. And I remember being a bit disheartened because I had heard that these celebrations were happening. And I remember taking the photo I had of my own grandfather, putting it in the inside jacket of my pocket, walking to mass that they were having special for the Los Muertos and there not being a place to put Mm. his picture. And Mm. so that was a little bit disheartening because even though there's difference between somebody saying, yes, you can put pictures, but when you see it's already filled and it's so artistically decorated and the fact that it was in a building across campus from where I lived created so much hesitancy that Mm. I, it didn't feel the same. Okay. And I remember that feeling, and I remember the fall of my sophomore year going in to ask Bejiro Balcaba, Mm -hmm. who is now my current uh, current supervisor in campus ministry. (laughs) Be careful what you you ask for, (laughs) right? You might get a job. (laughs) Yes. Uh, If we could try and do the celebration every dorm just because there's a reason why altares or ofrendas are put in schools and homes, more importantly, because of the focus on family. And here at Notre Dame, they say that your dorm is your home. Mm -hmm. So it seems fitting to do it in the dorms as well. And that was when I think my real adult journey of faith started because all of a sudden (laughs) I got it flipped back on me. Okay, this sounds like a great idea, but you need to go out and you need to explain to everybody that on campus that has no idea what this celebration is, what it is, and you need to tell them what it means to you. Mm-hmm. At the time, I thought it was easy to explain to somebody what this was because to me, it's the Latin American celebration of All Souls Day. It seems very basic to right, me. Right. <laughs> but then having to go and explain, like, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. And I remember being met with my junior year of having to get ready for the celebration again and go out 
and talk with people again. I asked one of the rectors who was working on our team in campus ministry, Joe, the re- rector of Kavanaugh, I asked her, what, what do I need to highlight? Because something there's a disconnect, something that I'm not getting across. Mm-hmm. And she said, have you ever said that this is how you connect to God? And I looked at her and I just said, no, but I guess I can say that. And taking that in itself was very difficult uh-huh. because that was really putting my own faith life out there for the first time. Yeah, a lot of vulnerability in that. There was because I can go up in front of someone and say, this is really important to me because it's a time when I can remember my family and coming from a place where family is so important. That's the easy answer. Sure. But having to go out and say, this is how I connect to God. And honestly, having to figure out what that meant. Because in a way, I knew that, but I didn't know how. And having to explain that, well, the way that this is celebrated reflects the beliefs of the church that mm-hmm. we all hold. Yeah. It reflects our hope in life after death and the celebration that death is a birthday into heaven, as yes. we were told. Yeah. All of that is within the belief of the church that everybody holds. And honestly, it's a particularly difficult belief. Yeah, well, and I think that sometimes is the hesitation is we often hold death at such arm's length in our current context. We want to stay forever young and death is something to be avoided and something really to be feared because the unknown, what is, and what do we put our hope and death seems so final. But I think it is the example of things like Dia de los Muertos that shows some of our Christian hope and the proof in that we still remember these people. And it seems like it's getting more attention now and more understanding. I think, you know, the movie Coco helped, yes. uh, you know, in terms of if people didn't weren't aware of this. But you're right. It's such a beautifully Catholic thing that for people of faith, the, the promise of the resurrection is a real thing. It's not only about how I approach my life and think about my death, but it's it's also about how I think about the deaths of others and that the best thing, to your point, that we can do is pray for the dead, is to remember them, to tell their stories, and it's such a beautiful manifestation that I think, regardless of people's cultural heritage, that they can participate in because we all have loved ones who have died and who are exemplars for us. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. I want to ask you about coming to Notre Dame, but then I am going to ask you about how that's gone, you know, with uh, getting these ofrendas and and whatnot all over campus. But what about the decision to apply and then attend Notre Dame? Could you give us some sense of how that developed for you? Growing up, my parents put on us the expectation that we were going to go to college, all three of us, but they never said where. Mm -hmm. They had no encouragement in terms of where we go. It was go to college, pick somewhere that's going to be good for you. The biggest thing my parents always said was work hard right now because the time when you go to college, the question should be where should I go, not who will take me. Mm -hmm. So education was always important, but coming to Notre Dame was not something that I really thought of until my older sister decided to go to Notre Dame. And at the time... My sister was not planning on applying to Notre Dame. I think she's very influential in the story of how I and my younger sister came here as well is my mother was advised by some of her colleagues to have my older sister apply to Notre Dame. My older sister said, okay, I'll apply, but she didn't 
show any interest in initially in going. It wasn't that love story right, or yeah. that forever. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Notre Dame. That wasn't the, the right. truth for any of us. Yeah, the, Notre Dame the was a name. Babies born with class of 2042 or something on their onesie. Yeah, a little different than that. <laughs> and she very silently decided to go to Notre Dame. Okay. It wasn't until May 1st decision day that any of us knew. And Notre Dame was just a name still. Mm-hmm. It was... Yeah, my sister goes to Notre Dame. I've heard it's a good school. I know all of these ACE teachers are really happy to hear my older sister's going there. That's kind of it. Until I visited here my sister's sophomore year for a football game in October. And that was the first time I saw orange leaves. Mm. And I saw so many of them. And orange, but not meaning dead. Like orange (laughs) and on the trees. And it was beautiful. I remember walking onto South Quad and seeing grass and trees and the beauty of everywhere and seeing my sister's friends just wave hi to her from a distance. Everybody seemed to want to say hello. And that was the first time that I was like, this place is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I can see myself here too. Yeah. I could see it. And that was my junior year of high school. I went into senior year applying to college. I was automatically accepted to the University of Texas at Austin. And that was one of my first choices to attend because it was a great school. I wasn't convinced I wanted to go super far from home just yet. And Notre Dame became an option in March. And when I told so many of my teachers I got into Notre Dame, that there was just that sense of peace, that sense of I know if I go here, even though I'm not quite sure yet what I want to study, I know that I can succeed and I know that I will be able to grow because a lot of the other places I was looking, it was just this doesn't seem like the right fit. It doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like the right culture. Or if I go here, that means I can't decide to study this. And more importantly, I wanted to go to a Catholic school. I had been in Catholic school for all but, I think, four years of my education. And the difference during those four years when I wasn't was I wanted to come home. Home in the sense that I wanted to be in a place where I could celebrate Mass during the week in a community where my own exploration of faith would be something that was encouraged. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, it wasn't exactly encouraged in the same sense that I had needed. And I knew that attending a Catholic university would put me in the position to have the type of growth that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And how has that been? I mean, you thought that that was going to be the case junior year of high school and you're applying, but now you're here... How has that growth happened during your time here? I think when I decided to come to Notre Dame, I expected my faith life to stay the same. Okay. In the sense that I had told myself, I'm going to go to Mass every Sunday like I want to. I have heard they have Mass at the dorms during the week. I think I want to go to those. I want to be involved in my dorm Mass. I want to be an altar server. I want to be a Eucharistic minister. I want to be a reader. I want to take part in the Mass in that way and that's going to be how I express my faith because that has been what I've done all throughout my life and I came here and it was different. I still went to mass every Sunday but coming from Texas to to the middle of Indiana was very different. I wanted that same sense of church community because it was very distinct. I remember growing up all serving every Sunday 
but there were the same couples that sat in the pews around my parents that it was almost like we were their grandchildren too yeah. because they talked about loving to see the three of us who looked almost identical. Yeah. <laughs> but that parish family is, is, sounds like it was really critical. It was, and that was something I wanted here. And I didn't initially find that in my dorm mass, actually. It wasn't until I went on the Latino First Year Retreat mm-hmm. that I met this wonderful community of people that came from a similar background that just in our interactions were with each other, I knew that when we teased each other a little bit and laughed, that it was the same thing I could get from my family that Mm -hmm. I was now so far away from. And it was upon that decision that I decided to start attending Mass in Spanish, which I'd only done a handful of times growing up. We primarily went in English because my parents were very serious about attending the same parish every Sunday. And what the years that we were in Catholic school, they, they wanted us to attend the parish that was attached to the Catholic school. That was something they very firmly believed in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I found that community there, and I decided to start attending the Mass in Spanish every Sunday, and my Spanish was probably conversational. It's gotten better. Uh Could definitely, I will say to my parents who sometimes are concerned, I do understand the homily every time. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like every other kid. (laughs) It takes a little while to sink in, but I do understand, and I think it opened up something new for me because now I sit there and I think, well, in English, the mass translation says this, mm-hmm. but in Spanish, it says this. It's like, I kind of like how it says it in Spanish better. I f- that language difference does actually help me connect or understand a bit more or makes it seem a little bit closer just what gets lost in translation. Yeah. And that was something that I've fallen in love with and some of my best friends I see only on Sundays there. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've got different classes, different schedules, but I know that I can go and see them, and the fact that we share in the Eucharist together is something that keeps those relationships so close, and it's a space of such joy mm-hmm. because every person that is there is there because they want to be there because they recognize that there's something a little bit different about going and being in that community together and we love when new people come just because there's something so special and so intimate in that space together. So I started going to Mass in Spanish, and I honestly never thought I would be working in campus ministry. I thought my faith life was kind of my own, and I have how I pray, I have how I go to Mass, and I do enjoy the community, but it's not necessarily like I'm up there talking to people about topics of the faith. And I think a lot of that is actually growing up, we didn't have church youth groups Mm. at the parish that I went to. So that type of environment, that added social community of faith environment, I didn't really have. And so that was something that was very new to me when I came here. But the great thing about that first year retreat I went on was every month there were follow-up events and I got to see everybody that I went on the retreat with, and we just talked about different matters of faith. If it was Lent, it was talking about, this is really what Lent is. Like, we know that you grew up giving something up for Lent, but here's why you're actually doing that. Here's what we can learn. And it really opened the door for conversations of faith, but within a wonderful community. And I saw that change, and still, when it came to my first year, I knew these people that were campus ministry interns, 
but it was still something that I didn't know I could do. Yeah. I still to this day usually tell people I feel like I'm unqualified for my job a lot of the time. <laughs> but I always liked the saying, God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Yeah. So I had that interest and I had that desire to make the faith that I grew up in its distinct cultural aspects present here on campus. And mm-hmm. I think that's when it really started was I saw that what I was used to from back home wasn't necessarily here or wasn't prominent. And I knew that this is not the only way that I connect to God or people that are from the same background as I connect to God. Because if we just all took a chance to look at how somebody else connects to the faith that we share, but in their specific way, then it's like trying out a different method of prayer. Mm -hmm. You might also be able to connect. So you also participate in this unique celebration, then you might be able to connect to something that you didn't previously understand. And that was something that was very big to me. Growing up in Texas, Our Lady of Guadalupe was everywhere. Sure. Actually, my high school was San Juan Diego Catholic High School. Mm-hmm. So we <laughs> we knew that story like the back of our hands. And growing up, that was a story that I loved so much. Being a kid that loved dinosaurs, loved science, had science books everywhere, that one story was what got me through so much doubt growing up. Yeah. Because it's a little bit tough when you're a kid that wants to do science and you have all of this stuff laid out in front of you. And these are complicated questions. We're talking about them in my theology class today, creation. But whatever brought me back was somehow... In the middle of winter, there were roses on a hill in Mexico, and those roses, I don't, I can't even say painted. Right, yeah. They (laughs) they put on a tilma something that still exists to this day from over 500 years ago that should not still exist. It should have decomposed by now, and the fact that I saw it, it's always been something that I've held very dear. That got me through so much out growing up and then coming here and even seeing that celebration here and seeing how it has grown throughout the years is really special. Yeah. I think there's something very beautiful about students coming together to pray the rosary at 11 o'clock at night during finals week Mm -hmm. because it's December 11th at midnight and we are we are there waiting to sing at midnight. That's so that's so neat and it just all these stories make me think of community and the, you know, we are the body of Christ. And that's what we mean when we come together to worship. That's why we worship as a community on Sundays and not just in my own room or with my own relationship with God. And and you took these opportunities of the Spanish language mass and Dia de los Muertos and Guadalupe, all these functions like you're helping build the community, expand the community. And that's what we're doing here as we as you said, interact with different practices of faith, that all those things are part of our better understanding of the body of Christ and and what this means. You mentioned this idea of, hey, we need a better celebration of Dia de los Muertos. What happened in the aftermath, and, and what is the practice of it like now on campus? My sophomore year, it started with putting out the call to dorms. Campus ministry will provide these first materials, and this is what you should ask residents to put up. And 
send us somebody who will come pick up the materials and really take on that leadership role within their dorms. I think we had 13 our first year, so we were a little under half, but that was more than we were expecting. Yeah. And then my junior year, we said, you know what, why don't we actually do a procession from Cedar Grove Cemetery right on Notre Dame Avenue up to the Basilica for a prayer service to really incorporate, again, that community and that communal prayer together. And it was even bigger. And I think we had 28 dorms out of 31 that year participate and just a big celebration, a big procession. And then this past year, we did another procession, more dorms participated. We actually had to move our prayer service from the Mary Chapel in the back of the Basilica to in the main nave because there was standing room only last year. And so many people from so many different backgrounds wanted to see what was going on. They wanted to be part. They They wanted to know and they wanted to learn. And that was something that was so beautiful. And the way that we see kind of this evolution because it's changed and it's grown, but not just within the area of multicultural ministry, within campus ministry. It's not just, we've made it a bigger event. It's when their first Friday of November graduate dinner talks about the Los Muertos. They get the kids of the Mm -hmm. graduate students involved. And it's just seeing that it's spread everywhere and not just we've done work to make it bigger, but seeing that it's spread everywhere and that there's a new appreciation across campus for it really is something that is special. Yeah, it's something that you have received at some point in your life, and we have that desire to pass it on. And I just think about, you mentioned earlier about sometimes not feeling qualified (laughs) to do your job, and I think we all have those moments. I was like, well, let's start a podcast here with Faith and Dee, and we'll see what happens. But it's always, I think, it's our efforts, our best efforts, combined with the grace of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, things happen that we couldn't ever imagine would happen. And it sounds like that's what's happened with Dia de los Muertos. It's not just, this wasn't just your idea, but it was your fidelity to it and your efforts. And then all of a sudden, you kind of get this community, and then it starts spiraling off in ways that even you couldn't have done yourself or predicted. And you're like, okay, Lord, I, I see something Something else is going on here, which is, it's very gratifying when, when you see something like that happen. And knowing that this is going to endure, you know, beyond your time at Notre Dame or whatever the, the, the case may be, that there's something happening here that's, that's really special and that God's involved. Yes. You also mentioned the struggle, and we've, we've talked about this struggle with other guests of this dynamic of faith and reason and science and religion, and, and can those things talk to each other? And it sounds like you've come to a place of understanding in that and, and you know, living in that tension, but you chose chemical engineering. So I'd like to understand that. First of all, it's very impressive because from what I understand, that's, that's no slouch <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a major. That's very challenging. What brought you to choose chemical engineering, and what has the experience been while in it? Well, I chose chemical engineering on a whim. I will say on a whim. (laughs) That scares a lot of people. I've scared a lot of people saying that, and a lot of people don't understand it. I honestly don't either. I remember being back in my senior year of high school. I was getting accepted a lot of great places. I was very thankful for that. And I had teachers, friends ask me, well, what do you want to study? And honestly, 
whatever answer I gave was whatever mood I was in on that particular day at that particular time because I did not know. Mm-hmm. All I knew was I either wanted to study something in science or theology. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that was all I had. For the longest time, I actually said I did not want to be an engineering major. I just had this preconceived notion of what engineering was. It was all about pulleys, levers, moving stuff. I wasn't really interested in that. And then I thought for a long time when I was senior in high school, I just said, you know, I really like chemistry. I like biology. I like math. So I know I don't want to do something in science, except I'm not sure how much I like just knowing a lot about something. Mm. I wanted to be able to use it. I wanted to be able to do something with it, to get that creative side out of me. And that's how I kind of stumbled upon engineering. I declared chemical engineering prior to coming to Notre Dame. So I did have that kind of idea, but I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Chemical engineering, okay, sounds... It sounds like it makes kind of sense for what I'm looking for, but I'm really not sure just yet. Mm -hmm. So the name sounds good, but not really sure what it entails. (laughs) And I come to Notre Dame. I start in first-year engineering classes, lots of math, lots of just general engineering. And I quickly found out in engineering I did not really like building things. I didn't like making floats. Uh I And then I decided, you know what, I've – heard a lot about chemical engineering. People are telling me that you really don't have to pick what you want to do. And I liked the idea of not having to pick something. <laughs> Let's delay the decision a little bit. Yeah. So they said, you know, if you go into chemical engineering, you can either work in the oil industry or you can work in food science. You can make beer. You can make a lot. You just can make something. Mm-hmm. And I said, I like that flexibility of not having to make a decision just yeah. yet because I, I found it so many different interests and in a lot of things that I really wanted to be a lifelong learner and I found that chemical engineering would allow me to do that. The fact that I didn't want to give up Mm -hmm. or the fact that I could still sit there for four more hours after I've been sitting there for four before that Mm -hmm. and keep going was how I knew that I loved something. Yeah. Well, and it's such an important life lesson, right, that our vocations are not promised to be all roses, as it it were. There is something that there are going to be struggles. If it's, uh, you know, religious life, priestly vocations, marriage, whatever it is in your your career, that there are going to be hard days. But to not give up in that or to recognize despite this challenge, there's a deeper meaning here. There's a deeper commitment that's so important for for persevering in, in a lot of those instances. So I'm really impressed with you that you that you did that because I'm sure that not everyone would have. What does that look like for you beyond here? I, I would imagine you're a pretty employable kind of person with a chemical <laughs> engineering degree from Notre Dame, but do you have a sense of what the future holds for you? Following graduation, I will be working for Bechtel. It's an engineering design and construction company. I'll be based out of Houston, designing oil and gas systems and traveling to different construction sites, overseeing construction and work and initial startup of different types of refineries and natural gas plants. I am so excited. Yeah. (laughs) I am so excited to just see where this is taking me because I know how... I know how refining oil works on paper, and I've been very fortunate 
through our department here to be able to tour ExxonMobil's facility at Baytown mm. outside of Houston to see their refinery there. So I've seen it and I'm just so excited to really be part in designing those and designing for the future with the way that all of this current technology is going. The idea of making something and being able to be creative and solve these big problems is what I've didn't know I was working towards uh-huh. for so much of my life, but it's something that I'm so excited to work for. Well, it's funny. At some point, you don't have to take finals anymore. Like you, you've been a student for so long, you get out there and you start doing things, and it, like you're just on the cusp of that of all this learning and all this effort starting to pay off, and then you can go apply that knowledge in a way that that serves the world, which I think is is tremendous. You mentioned ACE a couple of times and some important figures in that. What were some of those ACE teachers, uh, kind of the lessons that they taught you maybe about being resilient or or persevering through challenges or, or just the practice of their faith as, as young adults in the world? The ACE teachers that I had were the most fantastic teachers I've ever been able to have. And my family as a whole are so thankful for the Alliance for Catholic Education that they were able to provide teachers in situations that they might not have been able to go into before or where quality education was not necessarily guaranteed. And they really taught me what it looks like to be a young adult in service, Mm. but also to not really know that they were in service. To me, they were just wonderful teachers that cared about their students. And I didn't really understand what ACE was until I really came here and learned a bit more. Their role is to go into underserved Catholic schools and teach. Mm -hmm. And I knew what that was like from being a student of theirs. So I remember remember not knowing what a fume hood was when I came to college, Mm -hmm. going to lab for the first time in Gen Chem and them saying, do all your reactions in the fume hood. And I looked around to see what all the other kids were doing because I had no idea what that was. you never had that, yeah. Never having that, but my teachers were never upset about what they did not have, or Mm. they did not let us know. Yeah. They did the absolute best with everything, and that meant getting creative. That meant working through frustration that they never let the kids see. They worked so hard through everything, and they were joyful. They were happy to be there with us, and the biggest thing to me was I could tell a difference in high school of people that came to teach at my school because they wanted to feel good that they were helping an undershift Catholic school. But then you had the ACE teachers who really cared that we learned. They held us to a high standard Mm. that some people might not have seen as helpful, but they really believed in each and every one of us. And I remember the great lengths and efforts that they would go to in researching summer programs for us to do while they were over here at Notre Dame learning how to be wonderful teachers. <laughs> they would research summer programs for us said, hey, you like this subject, you like this, you should try and go to this. And they were so involved. And what I also loved was they were also sports coaches. They led clubs, they led choirs, they gave themselves entirely. They gave all of their talents to us. And just to this day, if they visit campus, they let me know so they can see me and so they can catch up. 
and it's that investment mm-hmm. in students. They remember their students. Mm-hmm. And I think something that's especially powerful or made the difference for me now is in high school, it was pretty much either every teacher I had was an ACE teacher currently within the program, or they were ACE graduates that happened to get placed at the school and decided to stay. <laughs> to stay, yeah. Uh, Austin's a very attractive place, but my school was very small and we uh-huh. didn't have too much. They were invested in us and they cared and they taught us so well and taught with enthusiasm and joy when high schoolers are not easy to get along with all the time. It was just the way that they approached their work. The idea of you can be in service to somebody while using your talents and while being productive, but it was also that sense of being prayerful and encouraging that development as well. That was also something very special. Well, and of course, it's a two-way street. It's a relationship, and there's such joy, I think, I'm sure, in their hearts seeing one of their students (laughs) do so well and come to a place like Notre Dame and chemical engineering, a very challenging major, and here you have a job lined up and stuff, and, and they they can live through their students. Yes, they've invested themselves, and then that has been taken, and here you are investing in others and in, in, in the world in your work. So that brings me to a subject that we always talk about on the podcast, which is holiness. And I'm thinking about the ACE teachers. I think about your parents. I think about others. So it seems like you've had several models of holiness, but are there any that come to mind or any stories or examples or people that come to mind of that's what holiness looks like to you as well as how have you tried to strive after holiness in your own life? I think like you said, the biggest examples of holiness in my life have been my parents, the ACE teachers I've had, but also at this point, my fellow interns. My fellow interns in Canvas Ministry are some of the most wonderful people I have had the pleasure of knowing. And they definitely encourage my own pursuit of holiness. I'd say that also influential in pursuit of holiness would be uh, my spiritual director, Father John Herman. We, as interns, are encouraged to seek out spiritual direction. Yeah. I walked to the seminary for the first time to visit him at the beginning of the school year, and I sat down in the chair in his office, and I said, okay, I told you in an email, I'm here for spiritual direction. I'm going to be completely honest. You're encouraged to do this because of my job in campus ministry. So he said, oh, so you have to be here. And I was like, <laughs> well, I am encouraged to be here, but I am also looking forward to this because I realized at the beginning of my senior year, I was at a pivotal point. I am about to graduate, and I will have to put a greater effort into going to Mass, into going to different things, because I'm going to be out of this environment. And I want to spend this year putting myself in a really good position to be a young adult in the church and a young adult that serves in the church as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And... He just, he told me one thing because I just said, you know, I go to Mass every Sunday in Spanish, and I work in campus ministry, I do this, but I know that I could definitely do more, and I want more. I want a better relationship with God. And he turned to me, and he just said, all of our good desires come from God. So, you're in a good spot. (laughs) There's a connection there. (laughs) And then he just said, you know, if you don't know where to go next, it is completely okay 
to give that good desire that comes from God back to God. Mm. And that was really the start of this own journey I think I've taken throughout this year of the idea of giving things back to God, always giving back to God. And I found that for me, the most helpful forms of prayer and meditation have actually been on meditating the few words that I will be told by different priests or different individuals. That's where I've found a biggest connection, that's something that allows me to grow in my own holiness. It's through the different lessons that I've been taught. Mm-hmm. I remember I had the great pleasure of actually being able to ask Archbishop Shikluna mm-hmm. when he came to campus to do the talk on the church's sexual abuse crisis. I was able to ask him a question, mm-hmm. and it was not in response to my question, but in response to a different question that was that was asked where he said, you know, I tell victims of abuse when they ask me, where was Jesus when I was being abused? I tell them he was right there with you being abused. Mm. The idea of suffering and where God is during that time. Yeah. My family's going through a little bit more of a difficult time because my father was actually diagnosed with prostate cancer at the, oh, in wow. October. So we were still very much in that period of being unsure what treatment will look like and what we're going to do. Yeah. And it just got really tough. And I remember one day finishing an event that I was didn't feel fully present at for my ministry. I was not leading the event, so that I was very thankful I was able to just stand in the back, but I really didn't feel present, and that's something that hurt me because I always encourage the people that I work with and that work on my retreat team that you have to be fully present in order to do this ministry and the ministry of just being present is so important and feeling like I couldn't be present was difficult. And I remember walking to the Como Chapel and sitting there and starting to cry and just remembering those words from the archbishop who just said, if you're suffering, Jesus is suffering with you. So then I remember looking up at that crucifix and saying, okay, Jesus, if you're here suffering with me, then take some of my suffering. And that was something that over the next few months as my family, as we went through my father's treatment and very thankfully went through uh, the tests that confirmed he's now cancer-free, that that was something I took with me every step along the way. And I think that was the only way that I could have been present to my family the way that I needed to be Mm -hmm. was taking what I learned from the few words that the archbishop said that one day and I found that the few words that my spiritual director tells me the few words that I hear during a homily in mass the few words that somebody else at campus ministry tells me as just pieces of life advice or Mm -hmm. things to remember if I sit there and I pray with those few words of some of them holiest in my opinion and most influential people I've ever had that that helps me to grow and my favorite thing honestly when I get in front of my community within multicultural ministry is to tell them I'm not qualified to do my job <laughs> so I'm I'm here because because I wanted to share my faith mm-hmm. with all of you and we mm-hmm. share the same faith and I think it was that that really put me into an honest pursuit of holiness because it was also I'm getting up in front of everyone in this community setting. I need to be honestly in pursuit of holiness if I'm going to encourage that mm-hmm. of my of my fellow students and of people in the community that I love so much. 
especially if I'm going to be the person that I've been the person that somebody's run to in a time of tragedy just to hold them as they cry. And if I'm going to do that, I need to allow the space for prayer and meditation that way that I can serve better. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing that I've learned. Well, honestly, when I ask people to be on the podcast, they're like, uh, me? Uh, I don't, I'm not, I don't, uh, holiness? Like, that's not me yet. I'm working on it. But I mean, I think that's the point. That's the point is there's a humility in saying no one's 100% there yet. You don't become a saint till after you die. <laughs> We're all on the way. And this acknowledgement that we need other people, we need the advice, the little words of other people, the examples of other people. We need Jesus, you know, in the, the times of suffering, like we need to give things back to God. That's okay. It's not meant that we're supposed to be this light all on our own, ultimately reflecting the light of Christ anyway. So I think that's such a valuable thing and really a gift that you have shared with us. There's going to be a lot of words from this conversation that people hang on to and think about and meditate in in their own lives. And something that jumped out to me, you said it way in the beginning, but you talked about this willingness to serve. It's clear that that has played out in your life thus far, whether it be at Mass, with Spanish Mass community, multicultural ministry, the way that you've helped grow the Dia de los Muertos celebration on this campus. I mean, you've made us better by your willingness to serve. So I just am so humbled and encouraged by by that willingness, and we will continue to pray for you that as you go out into the world, you keep that willingness to serve in your heart and your spirit and, and find an outlet for that, whether it be at, at work or in the parish that you find. I, I have a strong confidence that you have that openness to, to God's voice. Everyday Holiness listeners, we appreciate that you have stayed with us to the end of this interview. So much has changed from when I first sat down with Cecily to discuss all this that I thought it would be helpful if we could hear a follow-up conversation with her. And she has been kind enough to join me remotely for a couple of other questions as it relates to her very unique experience, her class's very unique experience as Notre Dame seniors. So Cecily, so much has changed, obviously, for us as a nation and as a world and as a campus community the last several weeks with this pandemic and being at home. So you've spoken about your work in campus ministry. How has that changed given that you can no longer be on campus right now? It has definitely changed. We had to spend a week or two really rethinking what we could offer our students and our specific communities virtually. So um, I think two weeks ago, I had a mutual follow-up reunion that we would normally host monthly at school. We did that over Zoom. We played some trivia, caught up with one another, and it worked out really well. We're really starting to see We're really starting to see how we can use technology to remain connected with one another as a community of faith. We've hosted our mass in Spanish over, we've hosted it over Zoom. We've had, we still have our weekly bilingual rosary over Zoom now. And we've just seen really a great participation from our students and from alumni too of, of our community coming together to pray with us during this stressful time. 
it's been really great. Actually, last weekend, I was asked to help lead the first ever campus ministry virtual retreat. And that was fantastic. I was a little hesitant going in just because like retreats in general, when you get broken up for these smaller, very, very faith sharing conversations, really invite our students to open up and be vulnerable and speak from the heart. That can be that's difficult to begin with, with students that we might have just met in the past few hours, but now are really meeting for the first time over a virtual platform. I was a little nervous about, but it was really fantastic retreat. We had a great participation. It was also just being able to offer our students that online from the comfort of their own homes as a little bit of, of a break from the constant reality that we're living in about not being sure what the next day is going to hold or mm-hmm. really just feeling so disconnected. Being able to offer really this this retreat and this reprieve from the daily stress of life was really great. I know for my own for my own life specifically, just even going in to help and lead the retreat, I a lot of good came out of it. And we've just we've been really inspired and really and we've really taken our ministry virtually, which is I've just been reflecting over all the work they've had to think outside of the box to come up with in order to do this, thinking about John Paul II's call for the new evangelization using radio and television, and now things like Zoom and FaceTime. It's just been really great, and I hope that we can continue to keep this in the future once we do return to campus for students that are abroad or students that might be taking a semester off for health reasons. I really do hope that we keep some of this going. Yeah, we've certainly seen a great response from our Faith ND family and that audience being really appreciative at this time of things that we're doing and an opportunity for people to engage with us in a new way that that they haven't before. So it's wonderful to hear that's been happening on the student side. I'm also aware for you that you are a senior, and this second half of the semester has been a senior year like no one could have imagined. So what are some of your thoughts about what this is like being a senior at this time in a very unique situation? Not to be overly dramatic, but in a way it was very, it was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. When we got the email from the university first saying that students would be sent home for three weeks, and decisions to me further out. I was actually on a on a spring break pilgrimage in El Salvador, so I was really disconnected from the current state of the United States in general. And then getting that email was was shocking, but then also immediately wondering what is going on over there, not really knowing the state. And so it was very much just took it. It's okay. It's a three-week chunk. That's disappointing. But, you know, we're going to go back with so much appreciation for the friends, our professors, our classes, all of our activities that we're just taking a couple weeks off. And that was the attitude that I really kept in this. Mm-hmm. I re- returned home, did the recommended two-week quarantine, began online classes, just said, you know, I'm going to hear something April 3rd. And we got the news before April 3rd that we would not be returning for the rest of the semester. And that was, again, disappointing, just thinking about how am I going to end first my classes? What are finals going to look like? What is the final presentation for my senior capstone that is really a hallmark in the engineering curriculum at Notre Dame? 
what is that final presentation going to look like? And really a big focus on how am I going to finish out this year strong? How am I going to get prepared to take my first engineering licensing exam? What is that going to look like? And I just, in the back of my head, I still said, you know what? They haven't made any decisions on commencement yet or senior week. (laughs) Hopefully we're going to go back for senior week and we're going to have a great week all together and enjoy that and go to commencement, be filled with friends, family, everything that since I had attended my older sister's graduate from Notre Dame that I was so excited for. Just being commencement week in Notre Dame is very, very special. So looking forward to that. And then... I don't know, maybe a week or two later, getting the news about commencement. I still had not, I'd been fortunate to not have to leave the house yet to go do grocery shopping when I got that news. So when I opened that email, I honestly thought they were going to say commencement's postponed to July, August, September, that like some things like a couple of universities I'd seen in Texas were doing. Mm-hmm. And to hear that news was, it was devastating to dream because that really finalized. I don't know the time that I'm going to be able to see my friends given the state of the world again. I don't know what this is going to look like. And that was something that was very hard to take just because it was really going down to what we could have left. It's a little hard to describe, but what I came to after this was It's been really good to name all the things that we were not able to do. And once they're named and they're put out there, it's easier to try and move on and figure out what are we going to do next? And part of that that I found really helpful was not trying to immediately find a replacement for all those events Mm -hmm. or all those anticipated memories, but leaving a part of that openness as long as I myself don't try and fill it to make it better and seem whole once again leaving that that emptiness to allow for these wonderful experiences of spending so much time with my family right now at home allowing that to fill up this emptiness has been so much more comforting and brought so much more peace than trying to fill it myself with either events or different just different things that I would think try and fill in that loss of not getting to finish out my Notre Dame my time at Notre Dame as I was expecting or not having a traditional commencement immediately and that's what I found most helpful yeah there'll be a lot of pent-up excitement for that just I think globally for a lot of things to get back to as normal as possible and I'm sure there are going to be a lot of spiritual insights that come from this time, during it certainly, but even after we're out of it, to understand how the community was still present, how we're still together and still in relationship, albeit in a different way. So we'll know of our prayers for you and your classmates as you experience this challenging time and a most unique conclusion to a Notre Dame career that I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> And thank you for spending some time with us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. As a reminder, you're always welcome to sign up for our daily gospel reflection, where we will release new episodes of this podcast periodically. And you can sign up for that electronic newsletter at Faith 
www.nd.edu slash signup. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers, and thanks for being with us. Thank you.